0: Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel any time. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefe, Zuman, Nopales, Black Tip, Matthew the Navigator, Mossman, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Canifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. People will sometimes ask me who my favorite pirate is, or maybe who the greatest pirate ever is, and I never find myself able to answer that question. It's probably because I've read too much and thought too much about pirates, but there are contenders. Henry Avery is a contender. It's part of the reason I chose his flag for the podcast logo. He was successful as a pirate and probably got away with it. I like that. But then again, he was a slave owner and was very active in the slave trade and some of the more illicit elements of it, so yeah, that's pretty uncool. Benjamin Hornigold is another. He was a privateer with a code, a a personal code of ethics, not just a pirate code, and I like that a lot. But he would eventually turn coat and hunt down some of his former fellows. I like that a lot less. Usually, when I'm thinking about this topic, it comes down to the two pirates that were Hornigold's star pupils, Edward Teach and Samuel Bellamy. Both of them have gripping, fascinating stories filled with moral quandaries and ethical dilemmas, but they have problems as well. Bellamy is a serious contender for greatest pirate ever, and probably the most successful. And he's a character full of contradictions and questions that are raised, but he lacks the flair of someone like a Blackbeard or a Bartholomew Roberts. But that raises the other problem, the problem of where reality ends and fantasy begins— How much of what we know about Blackbeard is rooted in actual truth, and how much of it is myth? Do we like the myth more than we do the reality? And is that even really a problem? Maybe it's fine. The truth behind King Arthur or Robin Hood, if there is any truth, well, that wouldn't be nearly as engaging as the myth, and it wouldn't teach all of the same lessons. But when I'm asked that question, I wonder what makes a pirate the greatest pirate ever or even just the greatest pirate of their age. Is it measured in getting away with the piracy? Is it measured in how much the pirate in question managed to steal? Or is it in the myth that surrounds them and how they are remembered? Now I want you to keep that question in mind over the next few weeks. I'm not prepared to answer it by a long shot, but it's an important question to think on. Because, for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about a cast of characters that are nearly all contenders. Not necessarily for greatest pirate ever, but definitely for greatest pirate of their age. There were maybe half a dozen pirate captains that were all working in the same region at roughly the same time. They all, almost all, knew each other, and were probably friendly... Some of them were friends, but some of them, well, some of them were rivals, and some of them ended up as outright enemies. Now, we've talked before about the comparisons that could be made between eras of piracy in both the Mediterranean and the West Indies. I've talked before about Barbarossa as a pioneer, Francis Drake sort of character, and the privateers that followed Barbarossa were, in some ways, similar to the Buccaneers. But when the buccaneer era was finally drawing to a close, and the governments in the Netherlands and England and even France started to tighten the leash, well, the privateering work started to dry up. There were some lean years for the buccaneers. But then, a few ship captains decided to leave the privateering world behind and turn pirate. They stole ships and armed them. They took those ships to sea where they captured cargo and better ships and better guns. Then most of them founded bases with shipwrights and merchant fences and defensible harbors, places that they could call home. That's Hornigold, that's Jennings and Vane and Teach and Bellamy and Rackham, that whole drama right there. But in the first years of the 17th century, the 1600s, we see a story not entirely unlike that of Nassau unfold. There was an explosion of ravenous pirates sailing out of what were virtually lawless ports and decimating shipping for years sometimes they brought international trade through you know certain regions to a complete halt they were pirates they were real pirates in a sense that barbarossa and dragut and the earlier barbary corsairs really weren't these were mariners without affiliation or allegiance they were loyal only to themselves and their comrades they were outlaws of the highest order Hostus humanus generis, enemies of the whole human race. And it was actually here that that old-fashioned legal code was pulled out and dusted off to deal with these pirates. And there were some philosophical similarities between the two groups as well. Now, in the early 17th century, they weren't really fleshed out yet, but we can see the roots of the almost egalitarian and almost anarchic and almost capitalist and almost socialist ideals that would go on to define many later pirates. There were some very significant philosophical differences as well, mostly religious, but not only in that. And as we tell their story, we're going to look at all of those similarities and all of those differences, but I think, or... I hope to show, at least, that we can find the roots of West Indian Golden Age piracy here in the Mediterranean in the first decade of the 1600s. This is Episode 84, The Thieves' Path. These pirates in question have largely been overlooked, at least here in America and in our popular culture. Blackbeard and Captain Kidd and Henry Morgan are the pirates that we mythologize, and that we mold so many of our villains and our anti-heroes after. But these Mediterranean pirates, well, I think they're better remembered in Europe. They were major characters in English and Italian plays, and there were books that were called true and accurate accounts, but mostly they were fiction. There was one play based on one of these characters, the character that's going to concern us today, that actually outsold King Lear in the London bookshops, and it had significantly longer runs at the theater than Lear. I guess sex and violence and betrayal and rebellion just tend to draw crowds better than tragedies about old men descending into madness. And this character, this pirate character was probably more famous in London at the time than the fictional King Lear was in his own lifetime. He was discussed in the highest halls of power, and he was often called by the Lords of England an arch-pirate. Some historians have gone on to call him the greatest pirate of the era, but I question that. It brings me back to that question of what defines the greatest pirate of an age, this pirate might qualify under certain parameters, but I think he comes in at second or third place even. That shouldn't detract from his story. He was an arch pirate, and to the English, he was the most famous of the Mediterranean pirates. What made his story and the story of his contemporaries so fascinating is the world in which they operated. See, Piracy was a known fact of life for every mariner in the Mediterranean. Muslim Barbary pirates had been active there for more than a century. The Barbarossas, Dragut, Sinan Rais, and Murat Rais, these were known threats, and the threat of Barbary piracy waxed and waned all throughout the 1500s. But there was a very significant difference here between the Barbary corsairs and these pirates in question. These pirates were European Christians. Violence between the Muslim world and the Christian world was kind of expected, but these men, Dutch and French and English, well, they joined forces with the Barbary Corsairs. They betrayed their homeland and their countrymen, and eventually they betrayed God himself, at least of the eyes of the people living back in Europe. And there were pirates operating in and around Europe. Let's not pretend there weren't. Well, more than pirates, there were privateers in Europe that were busy attacking other Europeans. But this was mostly during wartime. And we will need to talk about those wars, but not today. There has been a lot of talk of politics and religion and war on the show lately, and I'm really eager to get to some good old-fashioned piracy. The big difference here is that the privateers up in Europe were fighting a patriotic fight. They were fighting for God and Queen, or, you know, for representative council, and for their country. But the European pirates, well, they were either ignoring those allegiances or they were actively fighting against them. So, I'd like you to try for a moment to erase all of the preconceived ideas you have about piracy and pirate raids and pirates themselves. I'd like you to try and put yourself into the shoes of a Venetian merchant sailor in 1603. Your idea of a pirate as this Venetian merchant sailor in 1603, in fact, what the definition of a pirate was, was a turban-wearing, olive-skinned Muslim corsair. He sailed on a galley, propelled by oars, and he had a scimitar at his waist. His shouts were in praise of Allah, and you knew that the fate of any Christian taken on one of their raids was slavery. So you are that merchant captain with a 160-ton, four-gun, two-masted, square-rigged carrick. That ship wasn't as large or as well-armed as those galleons being built in Spain, but It was fast, and without the need for oars, it had ample holds. The guns that were on board were welcome. Even if the Turks weren't as active on the sea as they had been a few years ago, there was always the danger of Moorish pirates. But they weren't your concern here today. They were just another danger on the sea that every sailor had to be aware of, pirates and sharks and storms. They could be avoided, and if not... They could be dealt with. But pirates aside, you're having a fine day. You're on your way from Venice with a hold full of precious goods bound for Rome itself, though you'll be stopping in Naples and Sicily. The sea was clear and calm, and the waters were a shimmering blue. The sky was clear save for a bright yellow sun. So what would you think? A Venetian merchant captain in 1603 on such a fine day, when you saw Dutch sails on the horizon. That might seem a bit strange. Why would the Dutch be down here in the Mediterranean in the first place? But Venice, your homeland, wasn't at war with the Dutch. They were fighting against the Spanish king on the continent, but that conflict hadn't really reached the Mediterranean. I imagine you'd take a closer look. And upon closer inspection, you might see that the ship was, well, a sleek vessel. She rode low in the water, only two decks, and perhaps space for ten or twelve guns. And she had three masts with a fully rigged bowsprit. And she could really move. She ate through the waves close to the coast like nothing you'd ever seen, at least nothing without oars to propel her. This ship looked impressive. It had to be something new, you weren't familiar with anything built like this, it was long and low and nimble, and it was well armed for such a small ship. Everything about her screamed coast guard, and when she finally got in close enough, your crew would probably gather around to have a look, and you would see that this sleek new vessel was flying the Spanish flag, now that was a good sign, But still, regardless, it's best to tell the men to be ready if there happened to be any trouble afoot. Maybe these Spaniards were friends, but even if they were, they could be out here hunting pirates after all. An hour or so later, that ship would hail you. She would pull up alongside your vessel, and the captain would introduce himself and his crew, or at least he would try to. See, as a Venetian, you probably didn't speak Dutch, and most Dutchmen probably didn't speak the Venetian dialect. They might speak a bit of Corsican or Tuscan, but unlikely to speak Venetian. However, both of you would be likely to speak Spanish. You would find out, speaking Spanish, that they are in fact merchants out of Dunkirk. Dunkirk was Spanish-held territory in the war, and it was giving the Dutch real problems in their little revolution. His crew were mostly Dutch, but some of them were English, as it turned out. That might be a bit worrisome. Englishmen and Dutchmen were known heretics, but all of the men on board this vessel claimed to be good Catholics, and the Englishmen among them spit whenever the Protestant witch they had for a queen was named. The Dutch would speak sadly of the troubles in their homeland, and said that they prayed that King Philip would soon have it all sorted out. Some of them claimed to be what were called Dunkirkers, or former Dunkirkers. Those were privateers in the employ of Spain. But the war was getting a bit too dangerous to be profitable, so these Dunkirkers retired and took on a merchant expedition in the employ of Spain. Men like those were just the sort of sailors that you might want to keep close in case there was any trouble so naturally you would introduce yourself, and then you'd go on to share pleasantries with the crew. All around, you might find them to be a good group of boys. Being merchant ships meeting on the sea, you would probably discuss the best places to sell wares, and you, being native to the region, would know the best places to buy the goods that will fetch a particularly good price back in the Netherlands. Finally, though, you would have to ask them about their ship, just... Well, what was it? At that moment, you see the captain get a light in his eyes. He might stroke the rail of his vessel. I like to think that you may have seen men treat their lovers with that sort of affection, but not their wives. The captain tells you that this ship is something new. They build them there in Dunkirk. They have a shallow draft so that they can traverse the seas on the coast of the Netherlands. They're calling them frigate-built. He bought this one as his privateer vessel, and it worked well hunting the Z-Rovers out of Holland. It was quite an impressive vessel. Now, you might consider asking the captain here to tag along with you. You really could introduce him to all of the right people all around Italy. That could fetch him a wonderful price for all of his goods. And in doing so, you could help the Spanish in their war effort, which was all to the good and you could claim a little commission for your aid. Plus, if you did run into any trouble, that frigate-built ship would be a real help, and perhaps, who knows, the captain might just be willing to share some of her secrets. Venice would really be able to use a fleet of them there in the Adriatic. but then a shout in is it dutch or english it it came from the dutchman and it was full of terror you turn and then you see it to the starboard there was a galley filled with a horde of dusky bearded men wearing turbans and wielding scimitars somehow you don't know how but somehow they crept up on you without anyone noticing mohammedan corsairs You see a hail of arrows set loose from the galley, followed by shouts in their barbaric tongue, and then the arrows fall. Some of your men are hit, but it's not too bad, but then you see that these Mohammedans are climbing the hull toward your rail and your deck. "'You call your men to arms. "'A few of them rush the rail immediately "'to cut the grapples and the lines with their axes. "'Some of them have guns to fire down on the first pirates. "'Meanwhile, the quartermaster grabs all of the guns and the sabers, "'and he gets them out to the men who rush the rail "'to fight that first wave of the moors.' The Dunkirkers. You call back for aid, and you see them scrambling to get their weapons. You order a plank set across the gap for them to cross. A few of the younger, braver Dunkirkers swing over on a line with their blades already drawn. Their gunners man the swivel guns and take up arquebuses. They're lighting wicks and packing powder, and suddenly you believe them about their experience fighting in the war. These are clearly fighting men." So, now that you have allies in your back, you turn around to face the incoming corsairs. You see a few of them getting over the railing. Some of the Englishmen that swung over are already in the rigging with guns drawn, ready to fire. Then you hear a command bellowed in a language you don't understand and a volley from behind. And then... You see several of your men fall over the rail, into the water, or into the deck of the Corsair Galley. Why did the Dutchmen fire? They only hit your men. You turn around, and then you see one of the Englishmen from the frigate, one of the men who spat when his queen was named, approaching you with his saber drawn and two men with guns to either side. Smoke and the smell of powder and blood fills the air, and another volley lets fly. This time you see it. This was aimed at your men." The Englishman sneers, and he gestures for you to lower your sword. This is a disaster, and you are forced to call for a surrender. When the smoke finally clears, you find that your crew is either wounded or taken prisoner. Three of them are dead, and several more will be by morning. And you have to have another discussion with the captain. Not the Dutchman who you'd met earlier, the real captain, that Englishman. This Englishman, it turns out, doesn't speak Spanish. He speaks in a language that is almost Italian. You catch bits of Venetian and a bit of Tuscan, and it's clear that he expects you to understand. But you hear some German and some English in there, and then, is that the language of the Turk? What is he speaking? It doesn't make any sense. He's clearly frustrated, so he brings over the Dutchman from earlier to translate in Spanish. "'He informs you that he is here as a privateer, but he has no design on your ship. "'What he's after here is provisions. "'They need guns and shot and food and water. "'They are engaged in a war, after all, you understand, and it's taken a toll on them. "'You might argue that the war was with Spain, and yes it is, but Venice is a known ally of Spain. "'This isn't personal, this is necessity. "'The English captain begins to look almost apologetic.' He pulls out a letter of reprisal and shows it to you, and it looks on the up-and-up. They will only take what they need, though. He promises to spare your lives, to give you your ship and most of your cargo intact, so long as you give over what they need. You might scoff at that if you had the courage. If he was a privateer, after all, he should explain the presence of those Turks. But then the captain does. See, he and his men, his English and Dutch friends, were abandoned in Morocco by their captain and their companions. They had to take on whatever crew and ship they could, and they couldn't find much. They were forced to sail for Algiers in a leaky little old galley that barely made the trip. There they picked up some crew. There weren't any Europeans, though. The pasha, the governor there, forced them to take on these Mohammedan corsairs and a whole corps of janissaries. He said that was the law. They could choose either that, or they could lose their ship and their freedom. The captain then glances over his shoulder and lowers his voice. See, these Turks are vile pirates. They have no respect for anyone or anything, certainly no Europeans." We didn't even want to attack your ship, you understand, but they forced our hand, and they will absolutely take everything of value that they're able to find, and they will find everything. The captain said he has no wish to impoverish one of his fellow Christians. He just needs enough to survive until he can shake these Turks. So, the privateer tells you that if you have any chests of coin hidden away, or maybe a stash of valuables, it would be in your best interest if you handed them over to him. He could look after them, he could guard them, and on his honor as a righteous Christian man, he would return them. He would even, he said, give over a little bit from his own purse as recompense for the damage done here today. Now, what choice do you have here? There were no good options in this situation. Whether he were telling the truth or lying, most people would hand over their valuables. Naturally, you agree to do so. You tell him where your stash and the stash of your top officers is hidden so that he can secure it away. The Englishmen and Dutchmen are busy unloading the cannons and shot and powder and food and water. You do notice that they're leaving you enough food and water to make it safely to a harbor but you do see that the Turks among them are exploring your holds, and you start seeing them carrying up things that are not what the captain had promised. When finally they appear to be done, they all get on board their privateer vessel, that frigate that you had so admired, and the captain waves a goodbye to you and fires off a shot in salute, and you notice that he still has all of those private valuables on board. Never to be seen again. So, what would you do in that situation? You had enough food and water to get home, you still had your ship, but how would you respond? You might sue for redress in England. Your goods were bound for Rome, not Spain, so they were not a valid target for privateers. This was the most common action taken by Italian merchants, and this happened to a lot of Italian merchants, and there are a few reasons that I wanted to share this fictitious story with you. I wanted to put you in the shoes of a merchant experiencing an attack like this. This was, well, piracy in the Mediterranean was nothing new. They knew of the Barbary Corsairs and their depredations, and of course most Europeans were familiar with privateering raids by other Europeans, but this was different. This was a pirate raid that, most Europeans hadn't ever seen before. The ships, this frigate, which is kind of a big deal in this era, was something new, but also the tactics used, this pretending to be friendly, which happened very often, a false flag attack. And considering how new this is, this is where the piracy that we have come to know and love begins. So I wanted to put you there. And beyond that, we skip over a lot of the less noteworthy raids that occur during our story here on the Pirate History Podcast. Mostly because during the buccaneering era and even the golden age of piracy, most mariners knew that it was just better in most cases to strike, sail, and surrender. You wouldn't have as many of your goods stolen and not one of your men would be injured or killed. However, here in the early 1600s, they didn't know that. These merchants knew traditionally that they had to fight for their lives against pirates, against the Barbary Corsairs, or they would be taken into slavery. So when faced with piracy done by Christian Europeans, they thought they had to fight as well. But there were dozens, even perhaps hundreds, of this sort of complaint made to the English government. See, England had a long history of privateering. They were well acquainted with these sort of complaints. Ever since King Henry the Eighth declared that privateers, quote, shall enjoy to his proper use, profit, and commodity, all such ships, vessels, munition, merchandise, wares, victuals, and goods, which they shall take of any of his majesty's said enemies, end quote. And then, ever since Queen Elizabeth's declaration that all such complaints be heard in the admiralty court, a court which received ten percent of all profits from any privateers, the English had grown quite adept at dealing with and ignoring these complaints. The captain in question would likely receive the same reception from the Dutch officials who had much the same system. "'Would you take your complaints to the Ottomans "'if you were that Venetian sea captain? "'There were Moorish pirates among them, clearly from Barbary, "'but it was a Dutch ship, and there was an English captain.' And the letter of Mark was not from the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottomans were at peace with Venice, and what's more, those Barbary pirates were in a state of rebellion. They were no longer under the authority of the Ottoman Empire. More on that later. But regardless of whomever you petitioned for redress, whichever authorities heard the name of that particular privateer captain in question, their reaction would invariably be the same. Their eyes would go cold. They would take down a report, but they would tell you that no redress was to follow. They would then inform you that this particular Englishman was no longer a subject of Her Majesty. He had abandoned his country like a thief in the night, and that was what he quite literally was. Not only that, he had abandoned his faith and his church. He had gone beyond that. He had abandoned his God and his Messiah. He had left Christ behind and now worshipped Allah and the Prophet Mohammed, He was living in Tunis, reportedly, and that was a rogue city, so the English ambassador to the Ottoman Empire couldn't get the Sultan to do anything. So you were just out of luck. This was something different. This was real piracy. So you would very politely be told that you would be receiving no money from the Admiralty, but you could rest assured in one thing. Everyone in the world was currently hunting that particular pirate. Now, that attack didn't happen. It was fictitious. But I did take elements from many first-hand accounts of several different pirate raids that would take place between about 1595 and 1625. And we're lucky that there are several such accounts we can draw from. Unfortunately, there are few records left by the pirates here. We have very little from their point of view. Now, we have a great deal from one particular pirate, but he's hardly representative, and he comes a little bit later. However, I would like to introduce the first of our European Mediterranean Barbary pirates. He was that most famous of English pirates, that arch-pirate from earlier. His name was John Ward, though he commonly went by Jack. An Englishman, an English agent named Henry Pepwell, was sent to Tunis to investigate John Ward in 1607. He reported to the English ambassador in Venice, John Ward, commonly called Captain Ward, is about fifty-five years of age, very short with little hair and that quite white, bald in front, swarthy face and beard, speaks little and almost always swearing, drunk from morn till night, most prodigal and plucky, sleeps a great deal. End quote. Now, earlier I know that I said that I didn't have a favorite pirate, but from that description alone, I kind of love John Ward already. He's what I aspire to be as an older man. That description of him is our best physical description of John Ward, at least from a reliable source. Now, there are some other sources, some more reliable and some less, but they're what we have to go on. The first of these was a pamphlet entitled News from the Sea of Two Notorious Pirates, printed in 1609, based largely around the report made by Henry Pepwell. It was an immediate hit in the London bookshops, and... Despite some verifiably false information, it does give us what we know about John Ward's birth and childhood. It tells us, quote, "'This ward, as base in birth, as bad in condition, in the last year of her late Majesty's reign, gave the first onset to his wicked intendments. His parentage was mean, his estate low. His profession was a fisherman of Faversham in Kent.' though he would be confined to no limits, nor anything could serve him but the wide ocean. In this wicked resolution he set forth from Faversham in a small catch towards Plymouth." End this is telling us that in the year 1603, the last year of Her Late Majesty's reign, John Ward decided to turn pirate, and that's mostly true, but he didn't do so out of the blue in a small fishing catch out of Faversham, If that English agent were correct, then Ward was 55 when this report was written. That would mean that he was born in either 1553 or 1554, and that would make him 35 years old and in possession of at least one ship capable of sea travel in the year 1588. Now, Faversham was on the coast, and it was only 48 miles from London, It's almost certain that agents of Queen Elizabeth arrived in Faversham. Shortly after, Philip II of Spain blessed the banner of the Spanish Armada. Now, we don't know whether or not John Ward was still a fisherman at 35 in 1588, but if he was, it was here that he answered the call to enter the Channel and potentially to do battle with Spain. John Ward fought against the Spanish Armada in 1588, during the attempted invasion, under, notably, Admiral Sir Francis Drake. Now, we can banish any images of dashing heroics here. He almost certainly wasn't there when the proper, initial battle was fought. He was a privateer, he wasn't a navyman, and though Drake was technically his admiral, John Ward never received any orders from Drake and certainly never met the man. His job, along with many others, was probably to defend London when the Spanish passed by. There were many, many ship captains that had the perhaps enviable job of sitting around with what were, in truth, really just terrible guns on their decks. Just many of those guns didn't even work, but they tried to look intimidating. One catch out of Faversham, owned by a fisherman with a few antique firearms on board, wasn't going to scare anybody away. But if you get a few dozen of them, backed up by a few staunch warships, well, that just might convince the Spanish Armada to move on. So, Ward, well, he may have fought here, but he was at least prepared to fight in defense of queen and country. This was that patriotic motivation we discussed earlier. I mean, he probably earned some money here, but he was willing to put his life on the line to answer the call in England's time of need. That's a patriotic move. In this moment, you could compare him favorably to the English shipowners who offered up their yachts for Operation Dynamo in 1940. Now, next time, we're going to be looking at John Ward, among several others, In that Anglo Spanish War that was part of the Eighty Years' War between Spain and the Netherlands. But John Ward served in that conflict, and that's what's important today. He was a privateer. Nearly all of the sailors in what passed for a navy in Elizabethan England were, in fact, privateers. That was Elizabeth's policy. The crown was poor and couldn't afford a navy. Privateers, though, were cheap, and they might actually bring funds in. But that war was going to end. Queen Elizabeth would die in 1604, and James, the King of Scotland, would become James I of England when he took up the throne. And under James, all of those privateering commissions dried up. There was a privateer named Richard Bishop, who had had a commission under Elizabeth and lost it, He wrote that James I, quote, "...hath lessened by this general peace the flourishing employment that we seafaring men do bleed for at sea." End quote. Now, if John Ward were, in fact, the sort of man for which nothing would serve but the wide ocean, can you imagine him going from a profitable privateering career in the North Sea back to fishing off of the coast of a tiny hamlet in Kent, I can't, and John Ward couldn't either. So he signed up to be a sailor in the Royal Navy, on board a ship called the Lion's Whelp. It was a small Coast Guard ship, but he was never happy there. To be fair, no one was happy in the Royal Navy. It was a thankless way of life that usually gave out poor rations and worse pay, not to mention all of the punishments dealt to anyone that grumbled too loudly. But again, we don't have any of Ward's own thoughts written down during this time. John Ward almost certainly couldn't read or write. But all accounts that we do have call him quiet, terse maybe is a better word, laconic. And when he did speak, he was a man prone to swearing. But remember that play I mentioned earlier that outsold King Lear and lasted longer at the theater than King Lear? That was written by a man named Andrew Barker, and it was entitled, A True and Certain Report of the Beginning, Proceedings, Overthrows, and Now Present Estate of Captain Ward. From now on, if I need to refer to it, I'll probably just call it A True and Certain Report of Captain Ward. But Andrew Barker was quite happy to fill in some of those gaps left by Ward, and he did so with almost elegant prose but he gives the best description we have of ward during his years in the navy whether or not they are actually true barker tells us that when he was in the navy ward would quote sit melancholy curse the time repine at other men's good fortunes and complain of the hard crosses that attended his own End quote. there are some official accounts of ward's tendency towards Drink and violence and the cheapest women money could buy. He was something of a troublesome sailor, but they still wanted him on board. But we don't know what it was that pushed him to become a pirate. Did he receive a lashing? Maybe a demotion or a cut in pay? Maybe it was the rats on the ship or weevils in the bread? We don't know. But, once again, Andrew Barker is willing to put words into his mouth here. He writes, fictitiously, of Ward saying, quote, "'Here's a scurvy world, and as scurvily we live in it. Where are the days that have been, and the season that we have seen, when we might sing, swear, drink, drab?' And when he says drab here, he means to cavort with prostitutes.' to sing, swear, drink, drab, and kill men as freely as your cake-makers do flies, where we might do what we list and the law would bear us out in it, nay, when we might lawfully do that which we shall be hanged for, when the whole sea was our empire, where we rob at will, That is quite a speech, and John Ward never said that, but I enjoy the sentiment, it creates a character of John Ward. And it may actually have been a decent representation of what John Ward felt. The author did talk to many former privateers that mm, some of them turned pirate to amalgamate this response. But in the play, John Ward gave that little speech to a group of about 30 other sailors that were serving on the lion's whelp. They weren't on board, though. They were in a tavern in Portsmouth. See... Earlier that day, John Ward had heard from one of the women with which he kept company that there was a wealthy Catholic Englishman there in Portsmouth that had decided to take his family and set sail for the friendlier shores of France. Now, he wasn't only taking his family. He was taking all of their worldly possessions and a substantial amount of hard coin. Now, the family and his household staff were asleep in an inn nearby, but all of his goods were already on board a ship at anchor in Portsmouth Harbor. So, after a few rounds, and Ward was kind enough to buy these rounds for these thirty or so men, he gave that speech, and that inflamed the men, it reminded them of what they used to be. And then he informed them of that traitorous Catholic who was leaving English shores to flee to France, and there was a good bit of religious prejudice here. Remember, James I was considered by many English people to be a little too friendly with the Catholics. They would go on to have a civil war over the Stuart dynasty and their ties to Catholicism. But in James I's England, there was a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment, and the audience here, listening to this play, would be expected to sympathize with Ward. You know, he's only robbing some fat, rich, opulent Catholic which would have played well to many London audiences. Certainly a lot better than King Lear which was trying to paint a sympathetic picture of a king which were not particularly popular in England. But in the play, Ward convinces his men, those thirty or so men that had bellies full of wine and ale, that they should make for the harbor. He convinced them that this was the right move. So they made their way out of the tavern and through the streets of Portsmouth at night as quietly as possible. They made their way to the harbor, past any eyes that might have seen them, and Ward pointed out the ship that belonged to that Catholic men. The thirty of them climbed on board, making less sound than a single rat. There were a few sailors on board, of course, but they were subdued silently, and those thirty sailors prepared this ship for sail, They got her underway and maneuvered her out of Portsmouth Harbor without a single call being raised or a gun being fired. It appeared that they had gotten away clean and nobody had seen them. When dawn came and the pleasant buzz of a night's drinking was beginning to fade into vicious headaches, the men decided it was a good time to go below decks and count their loot. And when they got there, they found that the holds were all empty. Somehow, the Catholic had caught wind that a robbery was imminent, and he had had all of his cargo unloaded. Now, remember, this is a play. If any of it has its basis in truth, I would be surprised. But I would be downright incredulous if somebody told me that this little bit of drama had any truth to it. That the Catholic man had somehow heard that Ward and his men were preparing. I mean, that just didn't happen. You see... A bunch of drunk sailors might actually believe that some rich Catholic fop would be stupid enough to keep thousands of pounds sterling on an unguarded ship, and the author expects the audience to go along with that premise, but I'm not buying it. Now, one way or another, whether or not what happened in this play is true, Ward did find himself off the coast of western England in a small ship with no guns and 30 men from the Lion's Whelp. And that's actually true. The Lion's Whelp recorded these men jumping ship, and we also know where he was because it was corroborated by a French captain of a merchant ship when he told the Admiralty all about it. Off the southwestern coast of England, Ward and his men spotted that French merchantman, and Ward took this opportunity to give another eloquent speech, according to Andrew Barker. We have proceeded so far into the thieves' path that to return back we shall be stopped with a halter. And, you know, when he says halter, he means a noose around the neck. Now that speech, again, almost certainly didn't happen. But the men were portrayed in that play as ready to turn back. They had made a terrible mistake and they all wanted to return to England and give the ship back and hopefully get back on board the Lion's Whelp but that speech turned their spirits around. It turned them toward piracy. In reality, those men who had stolen a ship and sailed her across the southern coast of England probably saw that French merchantman and immediately jumped into action with only the briefest consultation, something like, hey, a ship, do we rob it? Yes, and then they got to work. The men made sure that the English flag on board their vessel was flying high. Twelve of the least suspicious sailors among them ran fingers through their hair and straightened their uniforms. And remember, they had gotten off the ship, probably wearing some form of uniform or identification, and sailed away with those on. But the other eighteen went below deck to prepare their weapons and to wait as silently as possible. And a scene that resembles a part of that hypothetical story I told earlier unfolded. Ward hailed the French merchantman there at sea. He came up alongside her and greeted the French captain as sailors in His Majesty's Royal Navy, and then they proceeded to enter into several hours of pleasantries. They all made clear that they were on friendly terms and nobody was a privateer. They discussed the weather and their ships and what the hated Spanish might be up to, this was typical talk when sailors met in the channel. And they shared wine. They had found a good bit of fairly decent wine on board the ship that they had stolen, and they shared it with the Frenchmen. So when the crew of the merchantman was getting a little drunk and a little bit sleepy, and as the sun was setting and in their eyes, Ward gave a signal. three times on the deck with his boot heel. That was when a crew of armed, hungover pirates burst out, screaming, onto the deck of the French merchantmen. Now, a lot has been made of these men being novice pirates, and they were. This was their first official act of piracy on the high seas. But they were veteran privateers, and let's not forget they were sailors with the Royal Navy, They knew what they were doing here, and they managed to take the French vessel without killing a single man. That was to the good. Ward ordered the French captives put aboard the smaller ship, the one he had stolen from Portsmouth, and he was going to take the merchantman with six guns and ample stores of powder and shot. This was a good ship for oceanic travel and for the business of piracy. However, a ship like that was a little bit too large for 30 men to crew. They could do it, but it was going to be hard work. So they would have to take on more crew, and as it happened, John Ward knew just where to find them. He piloted his ship for a fishing village nearby called Sand, which was a well-known haven for smugglers, known to John Ward from his privateering days. In the book, Pirates of Barbary, Adrian Tenniswood writes what serves as the perfect cliffhanger to end today's episode. He writes, Throughout Ward's career as a pirate, one of his most effective qualities was his power of persuasion. He had convinced thirty men of the Lion's Whelps crew to jump ship and steal the bark with its presumed cargo of Catholic gold— when that failed, he convinced them to take part in a daring act of piracy. In the years to come, he would convince Ottoman officials to provide him with men and munitions. He would convince English agents who came to hunt him down that they should change sides. And now, on the beach and on the quay and in the alehouse, he convinced the smugglers of Coss and Bay to follow him to the Barbary Coast. We're going to get to that story, but... Not next time. Next time, we're going to talk about the two other primary players in this first decade of European Barbary piracy. This time, one of them will be a Dutch Z-Rover who fought during the Eighty Years' War against Spain and a Frenchman who decided to turn pirate because of an argument with his mother-in-law. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show as well. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a review or a rating at iTunes. Everybody who has recommended the show to their friends on social media or in real life. Without all of you, I couldn't do this, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you really should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.